I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Bianca Morali on the show today of Uncouth Vermouth. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing? Good, nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. So you were born in New Jersey? I was, yes. Lots of lots of Jersey pride. <laughs> and how'd that work? I'm sorry about Tony. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, we are too, actually. I think everybody's I pretty sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, it was a little I, bit of a shock. It was a huge shock, I think, just because of his age. Um, and he wasn't, you know, doing anything... Other than vacationing in Rome, it's kind of a shitty way to go. Uh, but I, I wasn't necessarily a Sopranos watcher, um, so I can't really relate to him in that respect. But, you know, he was a good dude. He did a lot of good things for New Jersey communities. So you you were uh, you were living there for a while, and what was that experience like as a, as a child? I lived there uh, for the first 17 years of my life. I was in the same bedroom. Um, in my parents' house. My mom still lives there. And was she also in that bedroom? Uh, no. Okay, so it, normal childhood then. Normal childhood, <laughs> All right, yeah. just double-checking where we're at. Well, sort of. I mean, I grew up next door to a cemetery. My That's pretty badass. Uh, yeah. I always wanted that, <laughs> like the old cemeteries, like Boston style. You yeah, know? It, well, it wasn't terribly old. It was a Catholic cemetery. It was pretty creepy. And my childhood bedroom, the window actually faced tombstones. That'd be, yeah, that would be kind of uh, leave an imprint, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's a little different. Like Longfellow, you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, we used to go drinking in cemeteries when I was a kid. Cause yeah, big, us too. <laughs> big cemeteries. Because no one would bother you out there at night. Yeah, exactly. Was, and you could drink out there. We used to play manhunt in the cemetery growing up. Yeah. Uh, there were a couple of mausoleums you could actually get inside of. Oh, okay. And so it made for great hiding places. And all these, you know, I hills and that, yeah, different sized tombstones. So, it, yeah, it was really fun. It was really, really fun. We would go sledding uh, down this one particular hill and... One day, a friend of ours actually steered, for whatever reason, into a tombstone and cracked her head open oh. and had to get rushed to the emergency room. I was six, but we weren't allowed as much to go sledding after, after that. that. Yeah. And then a couple years later, that whole hill was full of tombstones, so we didn't have a sledding spot anymore. So downsides. More people had died. Know, yeah. 
Perhaps Tony will be there sometime soon. You know, I doubt that he would be in the Fortly Madonna Cemetery, but um, but I, I would I would assume that he'll be buried in a Catholic cemetery in New Jersey. So you uh, you escaped from your cemetery surroundings? Yeah, I did. Um, I started living with a band in a house in Bogota, and I I guess long story short, did not elect to go to college right after high school. I went to work. I started working full-time three days after I graduated. And I was a credit analyst. Uh, and then a couple months later, I was... So you know how bad in bad shape I am. <laughs> I mean, I could You're pull like, your credit Dalton and file. help you out if you oh, want. Oh, <laughs> boy. That was a doozy. Yeah. Well, I was working for this sleazy uh, leasing company. They leased credit card terminals to small businesses. Oh, okay. You know, these machines that are not really terribly expensive if you just buy them right, right. off the bat. But if you lease them, you know, you're you're signing a contract where you're paying for something that's going to get upgraded in a couple years. You're, you know, signing like a 10-year lease for it, paying 25 bucks a month. And it's just like a complete ripoff. Uh, was I got to get into that business. Yeah. That's a good tip. Right? Uh, was not something I was terribly proud of. Um, that was probably the first of many arrogant men I ended up working for. And uh, and here we are today, now right? on the show. <laughs> yeah, now the only arrogant man I work for is yeah. myself. I like to be um, <laughs> humorous about myself. Okay. Just kidding. You are not arrogant. I'm not yet. Yeah. Just give me time. It's true. Now that you have that yeah. article out. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I wish I could iron my shirt for the picture. That would have been nice. Like, you can actually see where it's not ironed. I, I was like, oh, well. No, no, that's part of your thing. Yeah, it's part of my thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah too busy to iron. Totally. He's got important <laughs> podcasting to do. So, you, uh, so you're so you there as a credit analyst, and then somehow spirits and wine kind of came around the, the pike. Yeah, I mean, I started bartending when I was underage um, at this place called The Rhino Room in Englewood, New Jersey. And I don't know if you're familiar with Englewood, New Jersey, but it's a town that literally has another side of the track. So you had like, you know, the uh, west side, which was where the Sugar Hill Gang was from. Um, and then you had the east side, which is where Eddie Murphy's Bubble Hill Mansion was. So really like a very strong divide, um, you know, on the wrong side or whatever you want to call it, where Bloods and Crips, you know, lots of gang fights, uh, pretty scary neighborhoods that you wouldn't want to walk around. So that's where the bar was, where I bartended. Um, is this a dumb question to say I thought Sugar Hill was in Harlem? Is that a dumb thing to say? No, Sugar Hill Gang, the... Uh, the group. Yeah. yeah. But I always thought they were from Harlem. Is that not true? No. They, okay. I mean, they... Sorry. It wouldn't be the first time that I've massively gotten You know, wrong. I mean, maybe maybe one of them or maybe they wanted to be, but uh, but they all live in Englewood. Oh, okay. As far as I know, yeah. All right. That's where um, they cashed out to. Like, yeah. <laughs> now that we had our one hit single 20 years ago, Englewood, baby. Yeah. yeah. Uh, pretty sure one of them works for the DPW there now. Oh, okay. Yeah. What's that? Uh, the Department of Public Works. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Did you see that thing about the guy from uh, NWA and he's like a junior football league coach now uh -uh. and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah it's, you Luke. know, well, because what do you do? <laughs> yeah, right. What's, what's the next move? <laughs> yeah. You become the guy from Sanford and Son. You become Red Fox. You totally. Know? You're like, I'm going to be nasty as I flush the toilet in the background. You know, I don't know. <laughs> so you... Uh, well... It's yeah, it's interesting. I I worked at this at this bar. Um it 
it was recently sold by a very dear friend of mine. His name is Jimmy Rogers. He now owns a restaurant in Elmwood Park, New Jersey called Twisted Elm, which is great. Um, and he decided to kind of get out of that neighborhood. He wanted to um, open a place that, you know, was going to be more more steady business. The Rhino Room was more of a place where you just kind of gave everything away, um, which was great for me yeah, because <laughs> well, bartending in those places is great. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So I had because you make hot loot. Totally. Yeah. Exactly. And I never worried about anything. I had a group of really amazing regulars, uh, lots of which are still really good friends of mine. You know, and I was. 18 at the time and you know they would take care of me like if somebody would walk into the bar and act like they meant me harm they would literally get the shit kicked out of them and thrown out of the bar um you know a couple of couple of scary nights in there but nothing too crazy for the most part it was kind of like russia because everybody was packing you know oh yeah is it true (laughs) yeah (laughs) so it's very much like the tastings you go to today right right. retail yeah yeah Yeah. it's like it's like when we go to the grower champagne tasting you know (laughs) (laughs) everybody He's really nice because that's why everybody wears spitting, those big so. sweaters so he can pack underneath. You know, yeah. you can't tell. We should really pat him down. So, but so then you made the move to Oregon. You were like, I'm out of here. I actually detoured to New Hampshire. Um, and is it really called Hampshire or is that just something that people from the West Coast think? Wow, that's the first time I've ever heard that. Actually. Okay, so probably, probably something not. just people on the West Coast think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I only lived there for a year, so maybe I just wasn't that tight with the state to, you know. With the stateies, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, another I, place where everyone's packing, right. except they're going hunting. Totally, or, and yeah. they don't wear helmets on their motorcycles, which I think is crazy because there are oh, moose everywhere. Yeah. Oh. It's uh, it's it's a very you know, live free or die. Yeah. All oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Preferably the latter. Apparently, you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, it, it was there was a lot of a lot of scary accidents that I um didn't witness, but saw the aftermath of if I would be driving to and from work, which was kind of crazy. Involving mooses. Invo- is, well, yeah, and bears. Is that, is that how you, and... you say it? Plural with the S. I'm not I think sure. It's, I think it's meese. <laughs> Bears? Yeah. You saw bears? Yeah, actually, I had uh, I had bears in my backyard every day. Did the regulars from the rhino room come and kick the shit out of them? You're like, do you mean her harm? I wish. I wish. <laughs> no, the rhino room actually closed while I was living in New Hampshire, which was really, really sad. And now it's like this bullshit, like retail clothing store or something. It's not the place it used to be. I mean, it was the original old Sheffield, old Sheffield bar, okay. which is the oldest bar in um, maybe New Jersey. Nobody really knows. You know, how do you know? Uh, especially when people probably had bars in their basements and shit. So, sure, you know, yeah. like, it's kind of like saying like baseballs from Hoboken. Like, how do you actually know? Um, but yeah, uh, in New Hampshire, I had this tiny bit of bartending experience and I really just wanted to go hiking all the time. Um, I've always enjoyed being in nature. Uh, my mom, growing up, and still, actually, she grows a lot of herbs for me, is a huge, huge gardener, um, an orchid grower. She's crazy. and so Orchid people get into it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I you know, really liked being out in the woods and seeing waterfalls and identifying plants and things, but I needed to make money. So I was like, oh, I'll just bartend. You know, and now I know how to bartend. I worked in this place where I would pour, you know, stolio on the rocks and Hennessy and Alizé cocktails. <laughs> um, but uh, it's harder than you'd think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, interviewed at this very fancy, gorgeous place called the Inn at Thornhill uh, in Jackson. 
and uh, Jim and uh, Ivy Cooper own it, and they have a very extensive wine collection. Um, I think at the time when I was there, they had 10,000 bottles uh, in their cellar. Um, and so I, you know, I mean, I knew dick about wine. All I knew was what my dad had taught me growing up. He was Italian. And so we drank wine all the time. You know, like even when I was a little kid, I would have a little wine in my glass with my meal. Uh, but it wasn't like educational at all. It was just what you did. You know, you're Italian, you drink wine. Um, so I kind of faked my way into this bartending gig at this place and didn't really at the time have any idea what it was going to mean to me. Um, but I ended up growing pretty obsessed with wine pretty quickly. And I think that that can happen if you're surrounded by it, you know. And that's when I fell in love with Oregon Pinot Noir. And uh, I don't know, I, I hadn't even visited Oregon, but I knew I had to live there. So I just kind of threw my cat in the car and drove across the country. <laughs> I didn't know a single person. I didn't have, you know, a place to live. <laughs> I just did it. I don't know why. Did you call it Oregon at first? No, actually. Wow, so but, you're one step ahead, though. Yeah, but I'm kind of a half a step back. Uh, you know, I'm like in neutral um, because it's really Oregon. It's not Oregon. Right, and right, I right. always say Oregon, but it's not. So I'm wrong, too. So <laughs> It's good to be a little little wrong. Yeah. Always have a little rust on the blade. Yeah, you know totally. What I mean? You don't want to be perfect because then you know, people fuck with you. You got to leave room for improvement. Exactly. <laughs> so you get out there with the cat, and then what yeah, happens? Yeah, Maisie. Um, I got a job two days later, actually. Um, uh, well, we skipped over this a little bit, but after you know the credit analyst bookkeeping thing, I ended up working for a big German extruder company for a year oh, okay. as a corporate accountant. So I have a very organized uh, background in that respect. It seems um, like it in terms of your business today. Yeah, I guess I have to because I'm the only <laughs> the only member <laughs> the only of that member. company <laughs> yeah. Yeah. of that CO period. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, so. You know, I uh, got a job through through a recruiter as a an AR specialist, so to speak, for this international steel trading company. And that's uh, uh, accounts receiving. Yes, accounts receiving. So I was in charge of making people pay and keeping, you know, the books clean. So I uh, bet the regulars from the Rhino Room came came handy then. You know, yeah. it's it's interesting because Jimmy's gonna show up in about an hour, <laughs> and you better have the envelope ready. Jimmy did visit me actually. <laughs> Jimmy and Jerry and Anthony visited me while I was over there. They were the only three, uh, but they came out to visit. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was so it's awesome. Not necessarily next door. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, it was great. It was really nice having them because, uh, you know, I didn't. I didn't have any good friends out there or even, you know, like acquaintances yet. It took me, you know, a good six months before I started making friends out there. And uh, it took me a year before I could get a job working in the wine industry. Why do you think that was? Um, you know, in Oregon, it's uh, just like any other uh, wine valley, you know, it's... I, I don't mean to say incestuous, like people have three toes and marry their cousins and shit, but it's definitely, you know, you have to know people. Um, you don't really get hired by resumes necessarily. You get hired because so-and-so needs a job and you need somebody. Uh, so I just basically stalked uh, everyone 
until they knew who I was <laughs> and until somebody finally hired me. And uh, three months into my little accounting job, I actually was made the lead of their inside sales team. So I was able to save up a bunch of money. So I, you know, had some had some money in my back pocket. I could go work as a seller at and an assistant winemaker for, you know, eight fifty an hour. And I was happy. I was really happy. It was, you know, what I had been working towards. And, you know, at that moment, I felt like I had done it. And what was that kind of experience like? Like moving the hoses around, spraying things down, yep. finding things? Yep, totally. Uh, lots of cleaning for sure. Um, you know, I mean, that's like half of running a winery is cleaning shit up all the time uh, and making a mess, which is the fun part. Um, running uh, the tasting room. You know, I the first job I had, I was, I was uh, working by myself. So I would just have a list of tasks that I had to get done during the day. And there was a little tasting room in the winery, so I would have to be doing all these tasks. And then if people came in, I would have to stop whatever I was doing, pour wine, talk wine, sell it, you know, got to sell it. So you had to shift gears up pretty quick. Yeah, which I like, actually. It kept it interesting. But at the end of the day, you know, on any given day, I would have, you know, hand-labeled 75 cases. And, uh, you know, just the tasks were always endless. And um, I guess it really taught me to appreciate you know, small wineries, because everybody, I think, when they first start getting into wine, I mean, maybe not everybody, but if you hadn't, you know, worked in a winery or been surrounded by that yet, you know, you assume that it's kind of a glamorous place. You know, you picture these elaborate tasting rooms and tons of staff. And, you know, in Oregon, for the most part, that's not what it's like at There's all. There's no chateau. There's no moat. There There's are no a couple, sculpted but... garden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> The, the the livery servant with the silver tray doesn't right. come with the several back vintages. That's, yeah. that's rather disappointing. <laughs> yeah, you my, you my, walk into the to the library and it's an actual library <laughs> with thousands of bottles. One of those old clocks, tick, <laughs> tick. You know that kind of thing. Yeah, and you make everybody who visits feel as uncomfortable as possible. That's what we do here. Yeah. we just don't have the clock. <laughs> it's true. I'll get you a clock. <laughs> It's the least. It's the least I can do for this exposure. I'm just, I'm just kidding. So, yeah, exposure is important when you're dealing with vines. So, yeah. you know what I mean. It's you, true. You, I'm sure you're. It's you're true. Concerned Some, about sometimes it all the time. dually so. <laughs> so, you uh, you're doing the tasting room thing, and who did you work for? I mean, who are these uh, people? Well, the I mean, the first winery I worked in was an urban winery. And um, it was very important to have that lesson. Basically, my first assistant winemaking task was to pour a 26-pound bag of sugar into a 1,000-liter tank. That's how they make really good wine, right? Yeah, Usually. yeah totally. <laughs> Only the best. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, immediately, <laughs> I thought to myself, something is terribly wrong here. Right. Yeah. Um, was it at least like good sugar? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, you know, it was Domino. So right, right. You know, yeah. High quality. I think it was the pink bag. I think they've changed their packaging since then. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I, uh, I don't have a bad, a bad thing to say about the people who run that winery. They're actually so amazing and wonderful. Um, but that's how they make wine. And you know what? That's how most people make wine. And before that moment, I had no idea. 
I, you know, was like everybody else. I thought that if it's wine, it's natural, you know, it's, it's grapes. What else could it be? I didn't realize that, you know, people used chemical additives. I didn't realize how manipulated you could really, you know, make these wines. Um, and I, I, uh, I didn't last there very long. I lasted there for about a month. And during that time, I was constantly seeking out something else. Uh, and that's when I, you know, kind of accidentally stumbled on biodynamics, um, you know, and, and just real... You tripped over the horn? Tripped, yeah, what? totally, right. full of poop. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just bought these shoes. This is not cool, man. I got beef with you, Steiner. Totally. <laughs> oh. Bianca Morali on the show today of Uncouth Vermouth. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing? Good. Nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. So you were born in New Jersey? I was, yes. Lots of lots of Jersey pride. <laughs> Not that work. I'm sorry about Tony. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, we are too, actually. I think everybody's I pretty sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, it was a little I, bit of a shock. It was a huge shock. I think just because of his age. Um, and he wasn't, you know, doing anything... Other than vacationing in Rome, it's kind of a shitty way to go. Uh, but I, I wasn't necessarily a Sopranos watcher, um, so I can't really relate to him in that respect. But, you know, he was a good dude. He did a lot of good things for New Jersey communities. So you, you, were, uh, you were living there for a while, and what was that experience like as a, as a child? I lived there uh, for the first 17 years of my life. I was in the same bedroom. Um, in my parents' house. My mom still lives there. And was she also in that bedroom? Uh, no. Okay, so it, normal childhood. Then. Normal childhood, <laughs> All right, yeah. Just double-checking where we're at. Well, sort of. I mean, I grew up next door to a cemetery. My That's pretty badass. Uh, yeah. I always wanted that, like the old cemeteries, like Boston style. You yeah, know? It, well, it wasn't terribly old, but it was a Catholic cemetery. It was pretty creepy. And my childhood bedroom, the window actually faced tombstones. That'd be, yeah, that would be kind of uh, leave an imprint, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's a little different. Like Longfellow, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, um, we used to go drinking in cemeteries when I was a kid. Cause yeah, big, us too. <laughs> big cemeteries. Because no one would bother you out there at night. Yeah, exactly. Was, and you could drink out there. We used to play manhunt in the cemetery growing up. Yeah. Uh, there were a couple of mausoleums you could actually get inside of. Oh, okay. And so it made for great hiding places. And all these, you know, I hills loved that, and yeah, actually. different sized tombstones. So, it, yeah, it was really fun. It was really, really fun. We would go sledding. Uh, down this one particular hill, and one day a friend of ours actually steered for whatever reason into a tombstone and cracked her head open oh. and had to get rushed to the emergency room. I was six, but we weren't allowed as much to go sledding after, after that. that. Yeah. And then a couple years later, that whole hill was full of tombstones, so we didn't have a sledding spot anymore. So downsides. More people had died. Know, yeah. <laughs> Perhaps Tony will be there sometime soon. You know, I doubt that he would be in the Fort Lee Madonna Cemetery, but um, but I, I would I would assume that he'll be buried in a Catholic cemetery in New Jersey. So you uh, you escaped from your cemetery surroundings? Yeah, I did. Um, I started living with a band in a house in Bogota, and I I guess long story short, did not elect to go to college right after high school, I went to work. I started working full-time three days after I graduated. And I was a credit analyst. Uh, and then a couple months later, I was... So you know how bad in bad shape I am. <laughs> I mean, I could You're pull like, your credit Dalton and file. help you out if you oh, want. Oh, <laughs> boy. That was a doozy. Yeah. 
Well, I was working for this sleazy uh, leasing company. They leased credit card terminals to small businesses. Oh, okay. You know, these machines that are not really terribly expensive if you just buy them right, right. off the bat. But if you lease them, you know, you're you're signing a contract where you're paying for something that's going to get upgraded in a couple years. You're, you know, signing like a 10-year lease for it, paying 25 bucks a month. And it's just like a complete ripoff. Uh, was I got to get into that business. Yeah. That's a good tip. Right? Uh, was not something I was terribly proud of. Um, that was probably the first of many arrogant men I ended up working for. And uh, and here we are today, now right? on the show. <laughs> yeah, now the only arrogant man I work for is myself. I like to be um, <laughs> humorous about myself. Okay. Just kidding. You are not arrogant. I'm not yet. Yeah. Just give me time. It's true. Now that you have that yeah. article out. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I wish I could iron my shirt for the picture. That would have been nice. Like, you can actually see where it's not ironed. I, I was like, oh, well. No, no, that's part of your thing. Yeah, it's part of my thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah too busy to iron. Totally. He's got important <laughs> podcasting to do. So, you, uh, so you're there as a credit analyst, and then somehow spirits and wine kind of came around the, the pike. Yeah, I mean, I started bartending when I was underage um, at this place called the Rhino Room in Englewood, New Jersey. And I don't know if you're familiar with Englewood, New Jersey, but it's a town that literally has another side of the track. So you had like, you know, the uh, west side, which was where the Sugar Hill Gang was from. Um, and then you had the east side, which is where Eddie Murphy's Bubble Hill Mansion was. So really like a very strong divide, um, you know, on the wrong side or whatever you want to call it, where Bloods and Crips, you know, lots of gang fights, uh, pretty scary neighborhoods that you wouldn't want to walk around. So that's where the bar was, where I bartended. Um, is this a dumb question to say I thought Sugar Hill was in Harlem? Is that a dumb thing to say? No, Sugar Hill Gang, the... Uh, the group. Yeah. yeah. But I always thought they were from Harlem. Is that not true? No. They, okay. I mean, they... Sorry. It wouldn't be the first time that I've massively gotten You know, wrong. I mean, maybe maybe one of them or maybe they wanted to be, but uh, but they all live in Englewood. Oh, okay. As far as I know, yeah. All right. That's um, where they cashed out, too. Like, yeah. <laughs> now that we had our one-hit single 20 years ago, Englewood, baby. Yeah. yeah. Uh, pretty sure one of them works for the DPW there now. Oh, okay. Yeah. What's that? Uh, the Department of Public Works. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Did you see that thing about the guy from uh, NWA and he's like a junior football league coach now uh -uh. and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah it's, you Luke. know, well, because what do you do? <laughs> yeah, right. What's, what's the next move? <laughs> yeah. You become the guy from Sanford and Son. You become Red Fox. You totally. Know? You're like, I'm going to be nasty as I flush the toilet in the background. You know, I don't know. <laughs> so you, uh, well, it's yeah, it's interesting. I I worked at this at this bar. Um it it was recently sold by a very dear friend of mine. His name is Jimmy Rogers. He now owns a restaurant in Elmwood Park, New Jersey called Twisted Elm, which is great. Um and he decided to kind of get out of that neighborhood. He wanted to um open a place that, you know, was going to be more more steady business. The Rhino Room was more of a place where you just kind of gave everything away, um, which was great for me yeah, because <laughs> bartending in those places is great. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So I had because you make hot loot. Totally. Yeah. Exactly. And I never worried about anything. I had a group of really amazing regulars, uh, lots of which are still really good friends of mine. You know, and I was. 18 at the time and you know they would take care of me like if somebody would walk into the bar and act like they meant me harm they would literally get the shit kicked out of them and thrown out of the bar 
um, you know, a cu- couple of couple of scary nights in there, but nothing too crazy. For the most part, it was kind of like Russia because everybody was packing, you know? Oh, yeah, is it true? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's very much like the tastings you go to today right, at the right. retail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like when we go to the grower champagne tasting, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> everybody's really nice because That's why everybody's Thies wears those fitting, big so. sweaters <laughs> so he can pack underneath, you know? Yeah. You can't tell. I should really pat them down. <laughs> so... But so then you made the move to Oregon. You were like, I'm out of here. I actually detoured to New Hampshire. Um, and is it really called Nampshire or is that just something that people from the West Coast think? Wow, that's the first time I've ever heard that. Actually. Okay, so probably, probably something not. just people on the West Coast think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I only lived there for a year, so maybe I just wasn't that tight with the state to, you know. With the stateies? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, you know. Another I, place where everyone's packing, right. except they're going hunting. Totally. Or, and yeah. they don't wear helmets on their motorcycles, which I think is crazy because there are oh, moose everywhere yeah oh it's uh it's it's a very you know live free or die yeah all oh, right yeah yeah <laughs> preferably the latter apparently you know what i mean yeah i mean it, it was there was a lot of a lot of scary accidents that i um didn't witness but saw the aftermath of if i would be driving to and from work which was kind of crazy involving mooses Invo- is, well yeah and bears is that, is that how you, and... you say it plural with the s at the end? i'm not I think sure it's, i think it's meese <laughs> <laughs> bears yeah you saw bears yeah actually i had uh i had bears in my backyard every day did the regulars from the rhino room come and kick the <laughs> shit out of them You're like do you mean her harm i wish i wish <laughs> <laughs> no the rhino room actually closed while i was living in new hampshire which was really really sad and now it's like this bullshit like retail clothing store or something it's not the place it used to be i mean it was the original old sheffield old sheffield bar Okay. Which is the oldest bar in um, maybe New Jersey. Nobody really knows. You know, how do you know? Uh, especially when people probably had bars in their basements and shit. So, sure, you know, yeah. it's like, kind of like saying like, baseballs from Hoboken. Like, how do you actually know? Um, but yeah, uh, in New Hampshire, I had this tiny bit of bartending experience. And I really just wanted to go hiking all the time. Um, I've always enjoyed being in nature. Uh, my mom, growing up, and still, actually, she grows a lot of herbs for me, is a huge, huge gardener, um, an orchid grower. She's crazy. And so... Orchid people get into it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I, you know, really liked being out in the woods and seeing waterfalls and identifying plants and things, but I needed to make money. So I was like, oh, I'll just bartend, you know. And now I know how to bartend. I worked in this place where I would pour, you know, stolio on the rocks and Hennessy and Alizé cocktails. <laughs> um, but uh, It's harder than you'd think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, interviewed at this very fancy, gorgeous place called the Inn at Thornhill uh, in Jackson. And uh, Jim and uh, Ibby Cooper own it. And they have a very extensive wine collection. Um, I think at the time when I was there, they had 10,000 bottles uh, in their cellar. Um, and so I, you know, I mean, I knew Dick about wine. All I knew was what my dad had taught me growing up. He was Italian. And so we drank wine all the time. You know, like even when I was a little kid, I would have a little wine in my glass with my meal. Uh, but it wasn't like educational at all. It was just what you did. You know, you're Italian, you drink wine. Um, so I kind of faked my way into this bartending gig at this place and didn't really at the time have any idea what it was going to mean to me. Um, but I ended up growing pretty obsessed with wine pretty quickly. And I think that that can happen if you're surrounded by it. 
you know, and that's when I fell in love with Oregon Pinot Noir. And uh, I don't know, I, I hadn't even visited Oregon, but I knew I had to live there. So I just kind of threw my cat in the car and drove across the country. <laughs> I didn't know a single person. I didn't have, you know, a place to live. <laughs> I just did it. I don't know why. Did you call it Oregon at first? No, actually. Wow. So but, you're one step ahead, though. Yeah, but I'm kind of a half a step back. Uh, you know, I'm like in neutral um, because it's really Oregon. It's not Oregon. Right, and right, I right. always say Oregon, but it's not. So I'm wrong too. So <laughs> it's good to be a little, little wrong. Yeah. Always have a little rust on the blade. Yeah. You know totally. what I mean? You don't want to be perfect because then you know, people fuck with you. You got to leave room for improvement. Exactly. <laughs> so you get out there with the cat and then what yeah, happens? Maisie. Um, I got a job two days later, actually. Um, uh, well, we skipped over this a little bit, but after, you know, the credit analyst bookkeeping thing, I ended up working for a big German extruder company for a year oh, okay. as a corporate accountant. So I have a very organized uh, background in that respect. It seems um, like it in terms of your business today. Yeah, I guess I have to because I'm the only, <laughs> the only member the only of that member. company <laughs> yeah. Yeah. of that CO period. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, so... You know, I uh, got a job through through a recruiter as a an AR specialist, so to speak, for this international steel trading company. And that's uh, uh, accounts receiving. Yes, accounts receiving. So I was in charge of making people pay and keeping, you know, the books clean. So I uh, bet the regulars from the Rhino Room came came handy then. You know, yeah. it's it's interesting because Jimmy's gonna show up in about an hour, <laughs> and you better have the envelope ready. Jimmy did visit me actually. <laughs> Jimmy and Jerry and Anthony visited me while I was over there. They were the only three, uh, but they came out to visit. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was so it's awesome. It's not necessarily next door. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, it was great. It was really nice having them because, uh, you know, I didn't. I didn't have any good friends out there or even, you know, like acquaintances yet. It took me, you know, a good six months before I started making friends out there. And uh, it took me a year before I could get a job working in the wine industry. Why do you think that was? Um, you know, in Oregon, it's uh, just like any other uh, wine valley, you know, it's... I don't mean to say incestuous, like people have three toes and marry their cousins and shit, but it's definitely, you know, you have to know people. Um, you don't really get hired by resumes necessarily. You get hired because so-and-so needs a job and you need somebody. Uh, so I just basically stalked uh, everyone until they knew who I was <laughs> and until somebody finally hired me. And uh, three months into my little accounting job, I actually was made the lead of their inside sales team. So I was able to save up a bunch of money. So I, you know, had some had some money in my back pocket. I could go work as a seller rat and an assistant winemaker for, you know, eight fifty an hour. And I was happy. I was really happy. It was, you know, what I had been working towards. And, you know, at that moment, I felt like I had done it. And what was that kind of experience like? Like moving the hoses around, spraying things down, yep. finding things? Yep, totally. Uh, lots of cleaning for sure. Um, you know, I mean, that's like half of running a winery is cleaning shit up all the time uh, and making a mess, which is the fun part. Um, running uh, the tasting room. You know, I the first job I had, I was, I was uh, working by myself. So I would just have a list of tasks that I had to get done during the day. 
and there was a little tasting room in the winery. So I would have to be doing all these tasks. And then if people came in, I would have to stop whatever I was doing, pour wine, talk wine, sell it, you know, got to sell it. So you had to shift gears up pretty quick. Yeah, which I like, actually. It kept it interesting. But at the end of the day, you know, on any given day, I would have, you know, hand labeled 75 cases and, uh, you know, just the tasks were always endless. And um, I guess it really taught me to appreciate, you know, small wineries because everybody, I think, when they first start getting into wine, I mean, maybe not everybody, but if you hadn't, you know, worked in a winery or been surrounded by that yet, you know, you assume that it's kind of a glamorous place. You know, you picture these elaborate tasting rooms and tons of staff. And, you know, in Oregon, for the most part, that's not what it's like at there's all. There's no chateau. There's no moat. There there's are no a couple, sculpted but... garden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the livery servant with the silver tray doesn't right. come with the... <laughs> Several back vintages. That's, yeah. that's rather disappointing. <laughs> yeah, you my, you walk my... into the to the library and it's an actual library <laughs> with thousands of bottles. <laughs> One of those old clocks. Tick, <laughs> tick. You know that kind of thing. Yeah, and you make everybody who visits feel as uncomfortable as possible. That's what we do here. Yeah, <laughs> we just don't have the clock. It's true. I'll get you a clock. It's the least. <laughs> it's the least I can do for this exposure. I'm just, I'm just kidding. So, yeah, exposure is important when you're dealing with vines. So, yeah. you know what I mean? It's you, true. You, I'm sure you're, it's you're true. concerned Some, about it all the time. Sometimes dually so. <laughs> so, you, uh, you're doing the tasting room thing. And who did you work for? I mean, who are these uh, people? Well, the I mean, the first winery I worked in was an urban winery. And um, it was very important to have that lesson. Basically, my first assistant winemaking task was to pour a 26-pound bag of sugar into a 1,000-liter tank. That's how they make really good wine, right? Yeah, Usually. yeah, totally. <laughs> Only the best. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, immediately, I thought to myself, something is terribly wrong here. Right, yeah. Um, was it at least like good sugar? <laughs> it, it was, you know, it was Domino, so. Right, right, you yeah. Know, high quality. I think it was the pink bag. I think they've changed their packaging since then. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I, uh, I don't have a bad, a bad thing to say about the people who run that winery. They're actually so amazing and wonderful. Um, but that's how they make wine. And you know what? That's how most people make wine. And before that moment, I had no idea. I, you know, was like everybody else. I thought that if it's wine, it's natural. You know, it's, it's grapes. What else could it be? I didn't realize that, you know, people used chemical additives. I didn't realize how manipulated you could really, you know, make these wines. Um, and I, I, uh, I didn't last there very long. I lasted there for about a month. And during that time, I was constantly seeking out something else. Uh, and that's when I, you know, kind of accidentally stumbled on biodynamics, um, you know, and, and just real. You tripped over the horn. Tripped, that yeah, totally oh, full yeah. of poop. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just bought these shoes. This is not cool, man. I got beef with you, Steiner. Totally. Oh. And my theory behind that is our whole lives, you know, particularly mine where I grew up with my dad dying my entire life and staring at tombstones every night before I went to sleep. If we're faced with death from the day we get here and if we just assume that we're going to die eventually, we will. But if we don't think about it and it's inevitable anyway, then who cares because you die anyway. But 
if it's not inevitable by thinking on a positive way and saying that you can live forever instead, you know, who the hell knows? So is it easier if you're really busy? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Although sometimes, sometimes after doing an entire production all by myself, I feel like I'm going to die. <laughs> so you did do uh, a vermouth line and how did that come about? So, uh, you know, being in New York, I felt really disconnected from nature. I was constantly craving ways to feel like I was working wineries again, feel like I was outside doing something, you know, feel like I was connecting to plants. And uh, I had a short stint uh, during the time my dad died. I worked for a small importer and then uh, directly after that managed another wine shop and I was there for a while. So anyway, I, suffice to say I had pretty bad experiences during a very, very traumatic time in my life. And I made the decision uh, that I was never going to have a boss again. And I thought, well, screw it because I'm employable. So if it doesn't work out, I can always change my mind and get a job later. But right now, I just want to see what will happen if I allow myself to own all of my time. So I did. I just gave myself all of my time. And I started uh, designing wine lists and maintaining them for a handful of restaurants. And that was kind of keeping me alive for a little while. And then I started with a couple other people throwing these underground uh, cocktail pop-ups, so to speak, and throwing, you know, just these, just these huge booze parties. And, you know, we would get booze sponsors and make vermouths and shrubs and syrups to tailor the cocktails to the boozes that were being poured. And I got really into the vermouth aspect of it. I loved that it combined edible plants with wine, my favorite thing. And, you know, I uh, started, um, I mean, I, I had always, you know, drank a lot of different vermouths, you know, throughout my, you know, whatever, 10 years in the industry, but I had never really, really thought of, thought of them in a way of uh, reconstruction. Like I had never thought to pick them apart and figure out how to make it, you know, a different way myself. And when I first started making them, I decided, you know, first of all, that I was going to use really good wine, uh, which is where Red Hook Winery comes into play. And I wanted to make a very clean product. You know, uh, I'm not saying anything positive or negative about other vermouth products out there, but all of the other kind of producers who are all, you know, making vermouths in the Carpano era style, they already exist. And I'm in love with so many of them, but I didn't want to make something that was already out there. So instead, I started making something that was here in New York. I just decided to use stuff that I could get locally, you know, which is why I can't use any citrus fruit. And it's why I don't use any vanilla or baking spices, you know, or sugar for that matter. In fact, I never add sweeteners whatsoever. So if it's a sweet wine, it's a sweet wine base, uh, which was very important to me. And when I first started doing it, uh, people, first of all, thought it was a pipe dream. <laughs> um, and secondly, they thought that it wouldn't be possible to, you know, be a slow food vermouth, so to speak. So then I got really stubborn. And uh, 
I decided, you know, to hell with it. I'm going to do it. You know, like I'm going to do whatever it takes and I'm going to do it. And, um, you know, I guess lots of bumps along the road, but I'm doing it. And, uh, you know, I, I keep, keep striving. I keep making new ones. I have seven different vermouths right now and they're all seasonal. And, you know, for as quickly as I can get my labels approved, I'll probably have seven more in the next couple of years. One one of the things I've noticed when I've tasted them is that they often taste a little bit fruitier, a little less quinine-y, and a little fresher than some of the vermouths I'm used to from Europe. How, am I imagining that, or is that true? And if so, why? Uh, that's absolutely accurate. There's a very good reason for it. Um, two main reasons. I use fresh wine. I don't use old wine. Uh, my you know, main explanation for that is I don't have to. It's 2013. I can use, you know, wine right out of the tank and I do a short infusion so it doesn't go bad while I'm infusing it. You know, I keep it in airtight vessels and then I fortify it, um, which is a very different procedure. Uh, granted, I talk to a lot of vermouth producers all the time. We, we all talk kind of, and all the craft producers in the U.S. talk. Actually, we have an email chain that's been going on since, you know, November. And uh, everybody I know who makes vermouth makes it differently. Everybody is a different way. So this is just how I do it. And there's nothing right or wrong about it. It's just my style. Um, you know, the brandy that fortifies the vermouth is, you know, made in a distillery down the street using the wine waste from Red Hook Winery. So everything comes from one place. And I think that that also, um, you know, makes it just a, you know, a, a more, a more fresh, you know, and, and a more complex product. You know, I'm not using a neutral grape spirit that I purchase, you know, from a laboratory distillery. Uh, I'm using something that comes from the grapes that, you know, are in the wine that is the base of my vermouth. And I think that that, you know, for one reason or another, just adds to the complexities. Sometimes the brandy comes out earthy and nutty, and sometimes it comes out really fruity, you know, and there's never any control element in that. You know, the only thing that is, you know, remotely controlled you know, to a certain degree is the proof. And what about that quinine part? I don't use, I don't use any, I don't use quinine. I don't use gentian. I don't use any, any of those. So some of the things that we think of when we think of like a lot of the Italian vermouths, mm -hmm. they're usually kind of quinine heavy or gentian heavy. Mm -hmm. You're not, you're not doing that. So what is the, the, what is the move that you do? Well, the only I mean, every vermouth I make has a completely different herbal composition. The only running theme uh, that I put into everything is mugwort. And you smell it right away in every vermouth that I make. And the reason I use mugwort is it's the cousin you're of... a big fan of Harry Potter? Totally. Okay. Just, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to be on the Did same Alice page. Did Alice put that in your head? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I just, I read the books myself, so yeah. <laughs> I recognize another Quidditch fan when I see one. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well... Mugwort is, uh, it's an artemisia and, uh, artemisia is, you know, just a, t a type of plant. So you have wormwood and mugwort and motherwort and, you know, I could go on, but, you know, mainly wormwood is what makes vermouth vermouth. Uh, in Europe, it's not considered vermouth without wormwood, but it doesn't grow wild here. 
And, you know, it's, it's important for me to use things that are local. So I use its cousin, mugwort, and I forage it in the middle of nowhere in Long Island. I drive up my little hatchback into the middle of the woods and fill it up and drive home with a bunch of bees. And I dry it, and then that's my supply for the season. And it's great. I mean, I get it from untouched areas. And for me, it's that perfect amount of bitter without overpowering every other herb I put in there. Uh, another, another thing that I do with the short infusion is because when you smell my vermouths, and I mean, you can agree or disagree with I can't this. smell, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> you, you know, you detect everything that I put in there. You know, whereas I think that, you know, vermouths that sit in a barrel, in an oak barrel for a month, you know, and, and turn brown, it, you know, what you're smelling doesn't really resemble, you know, the herbs as much anymore, which again, so many vermouths are made that way that I love, but I wanted something that was bright and fresh. Uh, and I, I wanted you to be able to stick your nose in the glass and really understand. I mean, not that there are many people who can detect, you know, sumac and feverfew, but I really want... I think there's some in this room. Yeah. <laughs> no, but so let me ask you, okay, so Pinot Noir, right? A yeah. lot of times in Burgundy, you know, it tastes one way. And then in places like Oregon, sometimes it tastes a little fruitier. You know what I mean? Like more fruit forward to the character of the same grape. Sure. Do you think that in a way you're doing that for vermouth in a, in a touch? Like in the sense that it's a little bit fresher, a little bit fruitier, less of a kind of a deep quinine bite to it, you know, or, or none. You know well, what I mean? Well, I mean, I think that it always just like vermouth depends on the producer. Uh, I know a lot of people in Oregon who use a lot of new oak. And, you know, sometimes I feel like their pinot turns out to resemble Syrah. Uh, and then, you know, I know some people who are, you know, doing little to no oak and, you know, those would be the fruitier ones, you know, maybe, maybe something that resembles more of a Beaujolais. Uh, but in Burgundy also, I think that a lot of the vines are older and, you know, it, it's definitely, it's the diurnals in Oregon. You know, they get those really hot days and the really cold nights. Uh, some of the vineyards are really close to the ocean, which is going to be completely different from a vineyard that's further inland. And, you know, but it, it always, it always comes down to the producer. The producer is the one who picks the fruit, you know, who chooses what goes into it. So you're looking at a more specific view than the broad kind of thing. Well, I just, I just don't think that I would give... Oregon a distinct style as a generalization, nor nor would I with Burgundy. Um, but, you know, then again, you know, you could say the same about Burgundy versus Jura. So I think, I think that regionally I understand what you mean, but I think that ultimately it always comes down to the producer. And, you know, we were talking the other day and I was like, you know, it, it kind of seems like what Dale DeGroff did for cocktails in terms of, hey, I'm going to use fresh juices rather than juices that have been sitting around a long time and out of a can. Mm -hmm. And then what you're doing for vermouth are kind of similar in the sense that it's, um, you know, it's fresher products that don't taste oxidized so much. Is there any correlation there? Yeah, absolutely. That's completely intentional. I don't want any oxidized quality. I mean, granted, I, there are so many wines that I love that are oxidized and vermouths, but I, I wanted to, I wanted something that was fresh. I use, like I have a beet vermouth, uh, that has 17 different herbs in it, but I juice raw beets and 
it gives it color, it gives it earthiness, but it also gives it fruitiness because, you know, it's, it's not beets that taste, you know, caramelized or sugary because they've been roasting, you know, for 45 minutes, but it's, you know, beets like you don't normally eat them. And so it's a different approach. And then when they mix with, you know, a wine that has really high acid, uh, it just makes for a very interesting combination. Nothing is cooked per se, you know? So the infusion is a short, fresh infusion and I strain, uh, I don't filter, and then I fortify and bottle immediately. So there isn't really any time for anything to get oxidized. And what's been the market reception like? I mean, how have things gone in terms of trying to sell this product that you make? So it has gone so much better than I ever anticipated, honestly. Um, I am already growing uh, a lot more than, you know, I thought I would, certainly not in the first year. Uh, I do think that, I mean, of course, you know, you probably heard we had a little bit of bad weather in Red Hook. How did that uh, affect you last directly? October. I mean, what happened for you? Well, it, it affected all of us. Uh, it set everybody back, you know, a good six, seven months. And, and this is the hurricane that came through. Yep. Uh, yeah, the winery got several feet of water and definitely way more damage than anybody anticipated. Uh, I saw Mark the night before, right, right before the water hit, and uh, famous last words, he said, I think we're going to be just fine. And then I think it was 6 a.m. the next morning, I texted him and he wrote back, winery destroyed. And, you know, you don't know what that means right away. I mean, that goes back to what I was saying, that when you're dealing with something while it's happening, you know, you can't really assess, you know, what the hell it was. So looking back on it, it definitely is something that is going to take years for, you know, to make everybody whole again. But I was fortunate in a sense that I had so much support and um, a lot of a lot of fan support already, even though I wasn't in the market yet. And I don't even know how that happened, but you know, I had I had managed to save enough herbs to make sample batches uh, throughout the months that I wasn't able to produce. And so I was still holding tasting appointments several every week and, you know, telling everybody I have no idea when I'm going to have vermouth. But for some reason, they were still willing to taste with me and eager to. And I was able to build up so many orders that by the time I did make vermouth, it was already sold, which is wonderful. I mean, that's like the best business plan you could ask for, certainly. Um, I received some really generous press. Uh, particularly Alice Firing uh, wrote an article about me in the Times that came out in February. And that was months before, you know, I was even in production again. And it, you know, allowed me to reach audiences all over the place, you know, so much so that, you know, I could be in 32 states right now if I wanted to. I have distributors from all over. And it's nice because it allows me to kind of grow at my own pace, uh, which is unreal. And, you know, kind of, you know, really make enough and still maintain my practices, but still be able to be one person and control the amount that's being made rather than letting the market control how much I make. So how long does it take for one person to put together a batch of vermouth and how much is a batch? Uh, a batch is the biggest batch that I make is 35 gallons. So that's a half a barrel. 
And, um, you know, it translates to, you know, roughly, let's call it 15 cases. And so, you know, depending, I guess it's more like 20 cases. So depending on um, how many batches that I make in a day, you know, will depend on how many get bottled at the end of that week. So if I am starting first thing in the morning and I am, you know, transferring batch after batch, you know, the most that I can make in one day is three. So it's really not that much. <laughs> uh, the biggest production that I've had so far has been uh, 70 cases. And how does that compare to some of the vermouth brands that we're familiar with when we think about some of the other brands? I mean, how many bottles do you suppose that they make in a year? Uh, I mean, if we're talking Martini and Rossi, uh, you would say millions, millions of bottles. So it's, you know, it's a little bit of a difference. And you took a unique approach to labeling. It, it kind of looks like a Monty Python thing a little bit. How did that come about? Awesome. Uh, well, two two reasons. My logo was made by my brilliant friend, Chris Mattioli. And I basically told him what I wanted. I wanted, a, I wanted a silhouette of a woman picking her nose. I wanted somebody who looked really proper, but I wanted to kind of be able to make fun of branding in general. And so he sent me about 30 different ideas, and that was the one that I ended up picking. And then my label art comes from this really amazing person who lives in Paris. His name is Matthew Rose. And he's a New Yorker, but he's lived in Paris for 20 years. So he makes this just absolutely insane collage art. And I fell in love with his art. He fell in love with my vermouth. He offered to donate his artwork to my vermouth labels. So that's, you know, really what makes them so unique and special. They're different label art, different colors for every different vermouth that I make. I think that it, you know, it makes them easier to pick out on the shelf and it also makes it easier. So rather than me having to come up with clever names for my vermouths, you just remember the artwork like, oh, I want the green one with the eyeballs wearing suits, you know, and that's the apple mint. So, you know, it, it makes them more recognizable. Um, and then the bottle itself, I, you know, totally stole from Red Hook Winery. Uh, they have a bunch of wines in that 500 milliliter Bordeaux bottle. And I love it. I love it because it fits in your fridge. And that's most important because, you know, people forget that vermouth isn't liquor. It's just fortified wine. So if you leave it out, it's going to go bad, you know, but if you can fit it in your fridge, it'll live for a month, which, you know, I mean, most, most people kind of shy away from vermouth because they're used to drinking vermouth that has gone bad on a bar and it really makes such a big difference. So, you know, that's where the smaller bottles come into play. And you said you didn't decide to go the traditional route and label it like dry Bianco uh, or Bianca or, yeah. <laughs> or Rosso. And why did you do that? Um, I, I think that it goes back to me wanting to do something that's mine. It goes back to me having absolutely no want or reason to mimic what anybody else has ever done. Uh, you know, like I was saying before, if everybody else has kind of that 1850s Carpano era style, I'm more like early 16th century, you know, before sugar was introduced to everything, um, when you used just what was fresh and seasonal and what was laying around. So uh, the naming 
comes into play because I try to make it easy on everybody. Uh, like I said, I, I don't really want to come up with clever names for everything. Um, coming up with uncouth vermouth was enough. And uh, <laughs> so I just kind of pick out what I smell the most and then try to tailor the label to make it a little more obvious. So for instance, the apple mint is my answer to a dry martini vermouth. It's a bone dry vermouth. The only, you know, ingredients in it are herbs. There, are, I mean, granted, there are 18 different herbs, 15 to 25 in everything I make, and uh, wine and brandy, and that's it. And so, you know, people think that there are apples in it, and I think that that's <laughs> misleading and my fault. Uh, but it's actually a type of mint. There are two types of mint in that one. And uh, I'm okay with people thinking there are apples in it anyway. So it's just kind of like... How do you like them apples? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, here's something that I find interesting about your vermouth is a lot of times when people think about vermouth as something you put into a cocktail, which often mm -hmm. they do with your vermouth. But it also seems like they're pretty approachable just to drink on their own because they do have that freshness. Is that something that people are doing or? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the whole, yeah, actually, most of the time people are serving them by themselves. And the whole idea was to make something that was a true aperitif. You know, if a vermouth is good, you want to drink it by itself. Uh, when I drink them at home, I mean, I used to bartend, so I love making cocktails. I make cocktails with them all the time. Uh, but generally speaking, I'll have them just on the rocks with a dash of bitters and a splash of soda. You know, put whatever citrus peel you have laying around and, you know, day drinking. Day drinking with Bianca Morali. Thank you so much for being here on the show today. Thank you, Levy. Have a great day. Bianca of Uncouth Vermouth. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.